You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. John chapter 13. Before we take a look at that, though, um, mentioned to you earlier, we are blessed to have Connor Long home from Snowbird with us. For those of you that are visiting with us or don't know some of the backstory, uh, Adam, Tiffany, Juju, and Connor were all a part of uh, our initial group that planted Sovereign Hope Church. And so Connor was just a little kid when they came, and he's grown up into a young man and has given uh, last summer and then this year and next summer to Snowbirds. So he's working on staff up there, uh, which is the camp that Lauren and I met at. Others in our church have worked there. Um, they're, uh, part of their staff served as our external elders when we first started uh, our church before we appointed Adam uh, Tyson and then obviously Marcus into those roles as well. So Snowbird's special to us as a church, um, and, and it's even more special now that we've got church members who are going to to serve there, and, and so excited that, that uh, Connor's been able to do that. And so I'm going to ask Connor to come and just kind of share a brief update about things that have been going on since the summer and how we can continue to pray for him. It's weird being back up here again. As much as I speak, I don't think I'm going to get used to it staring down a crowd of people. I love and know all of you, but it's just, I need to get used to it. But anyways, hey, uh, it's good to be back. Uh, This time, summer was challenging, but I was not ready to leave. I was, I was ready just to keep pushing on. And when I was home, it was good, but I was ready to be back. This time, it was a little different. I was really ready to be back home. Most of, most of the interns were so it was, it was interesting. Um, just, I'm really thankful for all of you. Um, my name is back up there, and that's, it's really, it's humbling, but it's, it's just good knowing that I have uh, a body of believers at my back. Um, that's just, I mean, it's beautiful, this is the way that we, we all live, live out being a part of the body of Christ, and it's beautiful that I get to be a part of that with you guys. Uh, just some things that, I've been doing so summer. Um, the intern year um, is from the end of summer, so about mid-August until the end of next August. So it's a full year of working at Snowbird. And for me personally, um, I am an intern, which means I do not take any of the classes. So at Snowbird right now, they're doing uh, classes that they partner with uh, the College of Southeastern. So most of the other uh, Institute says so you're either institute or intern, and if you're institute, then you're taking the classes, and you do a lot. You do a lot of classes uh, from eight to like twelve, and then they do tutoring um, with elementary school kids called Pinwheel, uh, which is up there, and they do that. So they don't really work a lot. They don't. Um, one of my good buddies, he does like HVAC and plumbing. He doesn't do that a lot, um, just because he's really just putting in some work just to. Better, better his knowledge of the Bible and uh, theology and stuff. So that's really cool. But me personally, I'm an intern, and there's a couple of us uh, that just work. So I don't do any of the classes. Um, I don't do any of the tutoring, but I really put in, I put in work. So that's, that's what I really wanted to do. I wanted to serve and just, uh, I'm, in, I'm the, in the electrical maintenance department, just like me old pops. So that's been really cool. It just because it's a really wonderful place to learn a brand new skill because um, they're like they're just, just really gracious people that 
are re- like right there. All of all of the guys in the maintenance department that I'm a part of, um, they're kind of like intimidating when you first get to know them. But then once you just right there with them, like they just really encourage us. No matter what they're doing, no matter what we're doing, um, if we mess up, someone's right there just to be just to lovingly but sternly guide us and correct us, which some of us need, some more than others, you know. Cool. Um, but some stuff that's been going on at Snowbird just with the facility. The sewer project is wrapping up, which is really, really cool, because that's just all of the all of the growth that we're doing is going to make Snowbird bigger. But one of the things that people like sometimes will hear is, you know, Snowbird's getting bigger. I'm just... I'm afraid it's going to lose its its campiness, its snowbirdness, if you will, if that's the word you want to use. But uh, one of the things that we just tell them is we're all united under the same gospel. No matter how big we get, we could we could have a thousand students each week, and as long as we're preaching the same gospel, like I can't see anything else you would want, anything more. Like, and that sewer project is just the first of many steps, just to increase the capacity of middle school and high school students that, w- that we get to bring in. And it's really cool. It's been awesome to see. Uh, they had a 20-foot a hole, which was like 10-foot deep, to put uh, manholes in. So there's just a lot of big construction for a little snowbird. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, and that's been really cool, just to know that that is for the growth of the gospel. And... Right now, we're, there's been a lot of meetings with uh, Brandon Crocker. He's our director of maintenance. And Brody Holloway and some other guys. Um, Matt Jones, he's our uh, director of operations. And they've been meeting with uh, architects and guys that are really wanting to fund the Supercoop. So for any of you guys that don't know, that's so we have a, a worship building. It's called the Coop. And that's just where we pile 500 kids, even though the capacity is really about 300 um, it's, it's ridiculous. Um, so this super group will allow more kids just to be in there and hear the gospel preached by our directors. And it allows us as staff to sit in there with them because even though it's a very small gesture, it's really awesome just to be in there in a worship service with your students and diligently take notes and be right there with them, like kind of nudging them if they fall asleep, telling them to get off their phones and pay attention. Um, it's just really good. It's really awesome that we get to have that growth, but still be for the gospel. Like, sometimes they're, they're corpor- like corporations or any big business that will grow and grow and grow and grow and then lose what they started on. But because this is the gospel that we're dealing with, it's just, it's hardcore that, no matter how big we get, there's still the same gospel that will never, ever change. It's just inerrant, and we can do nothing to change it. And then other than that, um, we're, doing a, we're doing a lot of really cool stuff, just maintenance guys. We're improving the rec sites. So for all of the students that come, it's just a better environment. But it just it's really cool that we get to be like, re, like build up Snowbird, like just the, the infrastructure, I guess, just to make the cabins look better, the rec sites uh, the coop, the metal building, we're expanding the kitchen right now so that we can cook more food for more students. And that, if you guys have ever expanded a kitchen from a porch, 
I don't know if many of you have. It's not easy. I mean, we're putting in all like all of the departments. So like the like the carpentry and framing, plumbing. Me and my uh, my supervisor Rob Vaughn, like all of us in a very small porch, framing it in, putting in electrical, putting in plumbing. It's it's fun, but it's tough sometimes. But you can get really frustrated and understand that it's hard and expensive. But pulling back to that same fact that it's for the growth and furtherment of the gospel. And um, other developments is um, everybody's, I guess everybody's heard about uh, our brother B and Chad. And man, that has been awesome to know that there are so many people across the globe praying for B. And just his really hard, really, really hard life in a very short amount of time. I remember the first Friday night that we had at Snowbird, um, one of the guys, uh, Greg Helms, preached about hearing about just the growth in Chad and this this one little guy that wanted to be a Christian and started out with a very young faith, and now here he is enduring harsh, brutal persecution. And it's so good that we can be praying for him and encouraging him like that. <coughs> so other than that, um, like that's really good that you that we're all praying for him, and it's really, <laughs> I, I know. Um, other than that, uh, more growth of the gospel. I, as well as many of the other institute and interns, will be going to Honduras from the 6th to the 11th of December. And what that looks like is just us going down to an orphanage and hanging out with some Honduran kids. We just, we hang out with them. We run some of the wrecks. I think there's a zip line uh, and then a paintball field down there. So we just get to be an, an example of the gospel through the way we act and through the way we live. And then we teach, uh, we teach a yard of kids. So that's just a big group of kids, uh, a little Sunday school lesson. And it's not on Sunday, but it's like that kind of same basic uh, story. And uh, I'm still lacking a little bit of funding. And as weird as it is asking for money in a church. But it would really be awesome if you guys could support. So I think there's a link on the city for my, my, my personal support link. And then if you want to support the other interns too, I know they'd appreciate that too. So not just me, but all of us. Um, you know, it's in the, in the way that we live, like it, it costs money to do things sometimes. Um, but this is, it's not just a a fun trip. It's to take our, like God's gospel with our lives down to Honduras and just share the gospel with not just the students, but the faculty down there. I'm sure they need encouragement because they work at an orphanage in Honduras where sometimes it might there might not be enough money to do to be at the level that they would like to be at, but it'd be really cool um for you for you guys to just be a part of that like by supporting me and the other interns, you guys get to be a part of that and one of the quotes that we've recently heard as interns is right is pretty strong go send or disobey. I think John Piper said that, so you either go out in the mission field, send somebody or you disobey a commandment from God, which is pretty strong. But sometimes we, like, all of us, definitely, me included, needed a kick in the pants as far as that. So, yeah, send us 
go go like take take trips for yourselves. Um, sometimes you can get involved with some of the things that Snowbird's posting just to keep uh, updated with us. So thanks, guys. I love you guys, and I'll be here next Sunday too. All right, thank you, Connor. Let's keep praying for him, especially over the coming weeks, being in uh, Honduras on that trip. All right, John chapter 13 uh, is where we're at this morning. Um, Last week we looked at the uh, washing of the disciples' feet. We saw ultimately how Jesus is providing an example of service that, that we're then called to follow suit with, right? So Jesus does it tells his disciples this is an example that you're meant to now follow. And so we looked at some, some of the, the key ingredients of his example that we're to follow, right? So last week we talked about serving others even in our darkest hours, that Jesus is, is troubled in his spirit. We obviously know what's coming, what's lurking just a few hours later, the, the beating, the, the persecution, the crucifixion that's to come. And it's even on the heels of that that Jesus is still serving his disciples, right? So even as we go through trials and tribulations, it doesn't exempt us from also serving people during that time. We talked about serving others from a mindset of love. It talked about how Jesus loved his disciples to the very end. And we talked about our love for others is a clear indicator of our salvation, right? That it's evidence to others, and it even uh, is assurance to ourselves that uh, by loving others, we gain deeper assurance of our own salvation, We talked about serving others even when you deserve to be served, right? It's Jesus who deserves to be served in that setting. He's the one who's about to go to the cross, and yet he's the one showing an attitude of service. So we serve others even when we feel like maybe we should be served by somebody. We still set the standard. We still set the example by serving others around us. Um, We serve others even when they don't deserve it, right? Judas is a recipient of the washing of the feet, even though he's about to betray Jesus. So uh, we don't determine who gets our service and who doesn't based on who they are. We're just called to serve those around us. We talked about serving others by doing the jobs nobody else wants to do, that um, nobody wanted to wash feet. It was a lowly, lowly, lowly act that was typically reserved for the lowest of servants, and yet Jesus does it, right? And so we talked about us being an example whether that's at home, whether that's at work, identifying the jobs that other people don't want to do and us being an example by serving in those capacities, right? Like taking a load off of others by picking out those jobs that nobody else wants to do. And then lastly, we talked about serving others with an expectation of blessing because Jesus says that we'll be blessed for doing it, but no expectation of being served in return, right? We don't wash feet with the expectation that that person's going to turn around and wash ours. Um, that we don't serve with the expectation of being served back. We don't serve and then stop until we've been served back, right? We serve, we expect to be blessed from it, but there's no expectations of being served in return. So our key points last week, no one's above serving. Everybody should be serving. No job is below me, meaning that we do the dirtiest of the jobs as Christians, and no one is below being served by me, even our enemies deserve our service. So I challenged you last week, identify some new ways to serve people in your life, whether that's at home, whether that's at work, uh, in, the, in the neighborhood. Look for new and unique ways. I had one person in our church contact me and say, hey, I did that. I sat down with somebody at our office and said, hey, what, what is something that nobody else wants to do? What's something that I could take off of your load? And, and that person signed up for that job. So it was encouraging to know that, that uh, at least one person in our church sought to do that this week and went and particularly asked for the jobs that nobody else wants to do. Okay, so I would encourage you to keep thinking through that mindset of how can we serve others around us? How can we be intentional 
with that. All right, we come to John chapter 13, verse 18 today. We've already read through the text, um, so we won't do it in one big chunk right now, but we will work through it verse by verse as we look at the remaining part of John chapter 13. All right, let's start in verse 18. It says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. All right, our summary sentence for today. We're going to see the betrayal aspect of Judas. We're going to see the command for us to love others around us. And then we're going to see that rebuke towards Peter, who was a bit over anxious about following Jesus. And Jesus lets him know that, hey, uh, right now you're, you're serving me in word, maybe not in deed, because you're going to deny me, right? Our identity is not tied to the evil done to us or the failures made by us but instead rest in the love that Jesus has for us. And we show this true identity by the way we love others. There's a lot of truth packed into that one sentence this morning. Our identity is not tied to the evil done to us. You may know people uh, in your life who have had some difficult experience, have maybe had some evil act done towards them, And unfortunately, they're still hanging on to it very tightly in a way that it almost defines who they are. Some great evil, some great tragedy, some awful experience that can't really be let go of, it's defining them. Well, that's contrary to what Scripture would say. We're not defined by the evil done to us. In fact, what we see in this passage is that Jesus uses the evil around us for good purposes, right? Jesus isn't defined by the betrayal of one of his best friends. And for us, I think we miss the fact because we're so conditioned whenever we hear the name Judas or see the name Judas in scripture, we automatically think of the betrayal, right? But the fact is, is that when when they're talking about, or when Jesus starts talking about one of you is going to betray me, nobody is identifying Judas as the obvious choice. Right? Like there was nothing that Judas was exhibiting that would make you think, I was wondering when we were going to get to this, right? Like, been keeping my eye on this guy, Judas. He's the one that really doesn't belong with us, right? Like, they're all like, who is it? Who is it, Lord? Who is it? To the point that they're almost uh, overly concerned about it being them, right? Like, you've just identified the fact that it has to be one of us. It's almost like everybody's thinking, like, it's probably me. Like, I've always felt like maybe I wasn't the one that belonged in this group, right? Like, nobody's looking at Judas and saying, ah, there's the betrayer, right? We've been looking to kick him out all along. We're not defined by the evil done to us. We're not defined by the failures made by us, right? We see Peter here who's boisterous about following Jesus, but Jesus is like, pump the brakes there a little bit, bud. You're about to deny me before before the next day's over, right? Um, But we're going to see that that's not what defines Peter either right? Um, Evil done to us, failures made by us, those aren't the things that define us. Instead, in this passage, we see Jesus saying, it's the love that you have for each other that's birthed out of the love that I have for you that really is meant to be that, that defining piece of who you are, right? We don't love others out of our own effort or out of our own goodness or ability to do so, Right, scripture's always talking about the fact that we are loved first by Jesus. He sets the example of what it looks like to even love. 
So our identity rests in the fact that Jesus values us. Jesus loves us. And it's from that identity that we can then adequately love other people, right? For our kids, we're valuable because Jesus loves us. And we're to show that same love to others by how we treat them. So anybody and everybody can let us down in this life, can do evil to us, can even betray us. That could be our parents betraying us. That could be best friends, closest loved ones. Anybody and everybody could do evil to us, betray us, and show a lack of love towards us. But our identity rests in the fact that Jesus loves us, right? And it's because of that that we're then empowered to love others, right? So it's not evil done to us. It's not our own failures that define us. It's the love that Jesus has for us and then the love that flows out of us as a response to that that really defines who we are. All right, we'll see this as we unpack John chapter 13. I'm gonna give you three points today, uh, three application points that lead into some application questions. All right, number one, be thankful that Jesus rules over evil. Be thankful that Jesus rules over evil. For our kids, Jesus is more powerful than any evil in this world, all right? Jesus identifies the fact here, starting in verse 18 that we've already read, that there's... There's a devil in their midst. There, there's, there's one who doesn't belong, right? I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen. The scripture's gonna be fulfilled. One who's eaten bread with me is gonna lift his heel against me. And I'm telling you this because I want you to know it before it takes place, that when it does take place, you will believe in me more. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. Be thankful that Jesus rules over evil. What we see in this passage once again reminds us that Jesus knew the evil before it ever happened, right? Jesus isn't surprised when this betrayal happens. He's been anticipating it from the time that he chose Judas to be one of his disciples, right? No surprises here. No surprises at all here. Jesus knew exactly what evil had been around him the entire time. Back in John chapter 6, verse 64, well before this last supper, upper discourse night, Jesus identified Judas as one who would perform such evil. Verse 64, but there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him, right? Jesus knew all along. No surprises for Jesus. He absolutely knows the evil before it happens. And what he's doing here is he's assuring the disciples that he knows what is happening and that there's no reason to be alarmed. 
right? Because imagine if you're one of the disciples and Jesus doesn't mention this. And then you see Judas in the garden just a few hours later, right? And Judas shows up and it's like, oh no. Like the only reason, the only reason these soldiers know that we're here is because Judas went and told them, like, this isn't part of what Jesus was intending. We've, we've been betrayed, right? Jesus wants to eliminate any of the confusion or the question marks that his disciples might have about whether things are happening the way that they're supposed to, right? So Jesus is just like, look, there's about to be a betrayal that's going to happen, and I've known about this, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not surprised about this, and I'm telling you this so that you'll believe in me more, right? Because I don't want you to doubt me. I want you to be assured of the fact that I'm completely in control of what's happening here. Even when you see me on the cross, I'm completely in control of what's happening here, right? We know from the, the parable of the, uh, the wheat and the tares from Matthew chapter 13, Jesus lets us know that even in the church today, there are going to be at times people who look like Christians, talk like Christians, try to act like Christians, that will walk amongst us and call themselves members of the church, and they're going to fall away. They're going to fall away from the faith. And the mistake that we make sometimes is that that causes us to doubt the validity of the gospel. It causes us to doubt Jesus because here's so-and-so who I've trusted in probably more than I should, and now this person's walking away from the faith. And then it wrecks our faith. And what we really should be reminded of is, oh, there are wheat and tares mixed together. Because that's what Jesus says, right? That the enemy comes in and sows tares with the wheat, and we won't necessarily know the difference until the day of judgment comes when Jesus comes back and gathers his church, right? So Jesus is kind of giving them their version of the wheat and tares. Hey, don't be surprised. We're about to find a tear amongst our wheat, right? We're about to be betrayed by one of one who's walked very closely with us. In fact, he's been a deacon for us, right? Like he's been the money holder for us. We've entrusted him with, with a lot of ministry, and he's about to walk away, and he's about to turn us in, and he's about to abandon the faith. And Jesus is like, that should just make you believe in me more, not less. And it should be the same for us too. When we see somebody that's close to us, because isn't it always the person that we never expected to be caught in something, to walk away from the faith? You're like, man, that's not who I would have suspected. It was the same for Judas for them. I don't think he was, their, he was their number one candidate for who was going to do this. They're completely, they're completely shocked. They don't know who it could be. Nobody makes sense except themselves as being the one who's going to betray Jesus. Right? Everybody's like, oh, no, I hope it's not me. Right? All these other guys are way better than me. It's probably me that's going to betray him. Right? It shouldn't cause us to doubt our faith when somebody close to us abandons the faith. There's wheat and tares, and there will always be wheat and tares right? There was a tear amongst them, and it was Judas. And Jesus says, don't doubt. I'm telling you, I know about Judas. Don't doubt. Instead, have your faith actually increase, because I'm telling you in advance. So it should cause our faith to increase too. When we see tears in our midst, it should solidify our belief in Jesus, because it should say, oh yeah, Jesus predicted this. Jesus said this was going to happen, right? Judas solidifies his identity as a betrayer. Look at the way John talks about this back in John chapter 13. I think John's intentional with his language here. He says, um, 
I'm in John 8, which is not where we need to be. John chapter 13, verse 30. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Remember, like, all through this gospel, Jesus has been talking about as long as it's day, there's still good that's happening, right? And then he, and he talks about it and contrasts it with this concept of the night. And what you get here in John's portrayal of Judas is he has stepped into the night, right? Like he has abandoned the light. It is no longer daytime for him, right? He has given himself over to the night. We even have that pictured with, with Satan coming in and dwelling him, right? That, that, that Satan, in some mysterious way, indwells Judas and participates in this betrayal of Jesus, right? It's nighttime. John has been talking about the dangers of the night that is to come. But Jesus knows this evil before it happens. Number two, he commanded the evil about how it would happen, right? So he's not just passively aware, right? It's not just that Jesus knows the future. Because sometimes people want to limit God's involvement in the future and give more than necessary ability and freedom to man by saying that God simply knows the future, right? Doesn't determine the future, doesn't shape the future, but does know the future, right? And that's just not the case either. Does he know the future? Yeah, absolutely. Because he commands the future, right? He commands the evil. It's not just that he knows the evil, he commands it. He's completely in control here, right? And he's not just in control of a human being, he's in control of Satan himself. It says that, um, verse 27, then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. That's when Jesus speaks to Judas. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do do quickly, right? Like Jesus is calling the shots here. He waits until Satan's even inside of Judas, so there's no doubt as to who's taking orders here. Not just a human being, Judas, but Satan himself taking orders from Jesus in the midst of him trying to wreak havoc on God's plan, right? And I picture Jesus maybe even grabbing him by the shirt, pulling him in real tight, right? Go do it quickly, right? Because I'm ready to go be with my father, right? Like, I'm ready to take care of sin. I'm ready to defeat death. I'm ready to raise from the dead three days later, right? Like, I'm ready to get to Easter. I'm ready to get done with, with, with Bad Friday, Black Friday, right? Like, I'm ready to get to Easter, right? And so I just picture Jesus being fully in control. Is he troubled in spirit? Absolutely. He knows he's about to experience separation from his Father, right? He knows he's about to bear the sins of, of the world upon his shoulders. Let's do this quickly, right? Let's get to the other side of glory here as quickly as possible. And so he's giving instructions to Satan here. He knows the evil. He commands the evil. And then number three, he uses the evil for what he wanted to happen. He's not the author of evil, and that's where we have to differentiate here. He's not the creator of evil, right? But in his sovereign control, he knows it, he commands it, and he uses it. He uses it for his purposes. So there's no surprises. He knows it. There's no independency for the evil. He's commanding it, right? So Satan's not over here doing things that he wants to do. He's doing it exactly how Jesus commands him, 
right? He's limited, no independency. And then there's no success in the evil because Jesus uses it for what he wants to happen. He first flips the script and uses Judas's betrayal to reinforce rather than weaken the disciples' faith, right? He flips the script. What you would expect is that the disciples' faith would start to crumble because of the betrayal, but Jesus actually says, no, we're gonna use this to build your faith, right? So he flips the script. He uses it for what he wanted to happen. He quotes Psalm chapter 41, verse nine, to show how the betrayal will actually fulfill scripture. So he's not only strengthening the disciples' faith here, he's fulfilling scripture, right? So in Psalm 41, nine, it's a messianic psalm, obviously about David, and a lot of David's life prefigures what's to come in Jesus. Well, David experienced betrayal in his life, particularly with one of his closest friends, one of his counselors, when he was having that tension with his son Absalom. All right, so the guy's name is uh, Ahithpul, something like that. That's the account in Psalm chapter 41, verse 9. But it prefigures what's to happen in the life of Christ, right? And so one of Jesus' closest friends, Judas, will also betray him. One that he's eaten with, right, will rise up in betrayal against him. So not only does Jesus use the evil to reinforce his disciples' faith, he uses it to fulfill Scripture, but then thirdly, he also reveals that God's glory is going to be accomplished through this. Verse 31, when he, talking about Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Man, Jesus knows that what is about to transpire will result in the glory of God. Looks evil, and it certainly is from the betrayal standpoint, but it is going to be flipped for God's glory. The cross, one commentator said, is the, uh, perhaps the greatest act of God's glory in history. And creation might be right there as a close second, if not a tie for first, right? But when you think about what happens in that moment on the cross, what we learn about God, right, and how his glory is put on display, right? We see his justice. We see his power over sin and death. We see his holiness. We also see his faithfulness and love, right? There's so much that we learn about God through the cross. And so Jesus is rejoicing over the fact here with his disciples that, hey, what's just happened is that I've sent the betrayer out, right? and evil's about to ensue. But what's going to happen in that is that the Son of Man's gonna be glorified. God is gonna be glorified through it. There is great purpose in this heinous act of treachery, right? Jesus uses it for exactly what he wanted to happen. He wants his disciples to grow up in their faith. He wants scripture fulfilled, and he wants his Father glorified. And all of that gets accomplished through Judas's betrayal. We can be thankful this morning that Jesus rules over evil. Because the same things are true for us when evil starts to creep into our life. Right? When somebody gets a diagnosis of cancer, right? I picture Jesus behind the scenes saying, whatever you're going to do, do it quickly. Right? And and just know that I'm going to use it for my purposes. Right? When somebody loses a job, do it quickly. I'm going to use this for my purposes. Right? Like that's the pattern that we keep seeing through the gospel of John is that he's in control of the evil. He's using it for good purposes. And it's not just that he did that 2,000 years ago, it's that he does it today too. He does it today too. 
right? He knows the evil. He commands the evil. He uses the evil for exactly what he wants to happen. We can be encouraged this morning. We can be thankful that Jesus has revealed himself this way. Gives us great comfort and hope as we face whatever evils come in our future. All right. Number two, be intentional to identify with love. Be intentional to identify with love. For our kids, Jesus loves us, and he calls us to love others too. Verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He's, he's telling us that, that our identity in the minds of others is to be wrapped up in love, right? The love that we experience from Jesus that now translates into how we love those around us. Number one, loving others is a command. Let us not lose sight of that fact. Why is that important? Because it reminds us that it won't always be what we are inclined to do. Right? Typically, you have to give commands out because it's not something that naturally just happens. Right? Now, as we get sanctified and as we're growing in our faith, it becomes more of the norm for sure. But in that, that, that just kind of natural state where we're still fleshly and, and we're still waiting for the full redemption that comes, when Jesus returns, we aren't always bent and inclined to love others. We're, we're inclined to love ourselves, right? And so we do have to be commanded to do this, right? And so we don't need to lose sight of the fact that we're going to have to be intentional to carry this out, right? Like you, you don't just leave today and say, good word, pastor, like that's what, I, that's what I'm just always inclined to do, right? No, it's going to necessitate you leaving today saying, okay, how do I make sure that I build this into my schedule? How do I make sure that I am intentional to love, not just in response to people, but proactively doing so? Because for us to be known as lovers, to be known as servers, that takes some, some, some real intentionality, right? It doesn't just come uh, if we're just kind of naturally going through the flow of life and, and trying to love as, as things come our way. I don't think we develop a reputation of being intense lovers that identify us with Jesus, right? I think there's some intentionality that has to happen, and it means us following through, carrying out a command that's given to us. Jesus is leaving us, but he's not leaving us alone. He's leaving us with each other, and that's the message that he has for his disciples here. He's like, look, you're not going to have me here anymore to do all the loving, right? To be the example, right? Like I'm leaving. Now you're going to have to do this yourself and you're going to have to do it towards each other because my presence is about to be removed physically from you, right? He tells them, I'll be with you till the end of the age, right? I'm not, I'm not going anywhere as far as my empowering presence, but physically you're not going to see me anymore. You're not going to be able to talk to me and, and, and hug on me and high five me and, and lay next to me while we're eating, right? I'm going to be gone, and you're going to have to be the ones who are demonstrating the love. And so he gives them this command, right, to love others. Number two, loving others can always be improved upon, meaning nobody gets to kind of check the box and say, yes, I am doing that, and I don't need to do it more. Because the standard that he gives 
is that you love one another just as I have loved you. To love like Jesus will never fully be realized. Right? Like we'll never be able to do this in such a way where we can say, I love like Jesus. Right? There's always a way to build off of the love that we're trying to show others. The love that uh, Jesus' love for us gives us the capacity to love each other. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This would be a good chapter to look at outside of today because he goes on to show things that are not loving, right? Ways to not show love to other people is to be involved in sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, things that shouldn't even be named among you, right? Like what, are, what is supposed to be named among us? Our love for each other. What's not supposed to be named among us? All these other things that aren't loving towards each other, right? Don't let there even be a hint. Don't even let it be named among you. It's not proper for the saints. No filthiness, no foolish talking, no crude joking, right? You don't, you don't want to be known as that guy at the, at the place of employment, right? The guy with the crude jokes, right? That, that doesn't need to be our identity, right? Our identity needs to be that, hey, we're the guys that, that, that take out the trash, right? The jobs that nobody else wants to do, we're the ones that are faithfully loving our coworkers in the, in the choices and decisions that we make with our time at work, right? It's a command. It can always be improved upon. Number three, loving others is gospel-driven. We make much of God with how we love. Loving others is gospel-driven, We are supposed to identify so closely with Jesus in the ways that we love that the lost world sees us as his followers, right? That that we actually get called Christians or little Christ because we are acting like Christ. This commandment that he's giving is that you love one another just as I've loved you, you're also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Our love for each other defines us as followers of Jesus. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Paul's thinking to that day when Jesus comes back and he says, I want your your life to be so distinguishable from those who aren't grouped with Jesus's people by your love, right? That, That your heart is blameless, that it's blameless in holiness before our God and Father, based on how you have loved one another. Man, I, I think a lot of times our doubts about salvation, we've talked about that over the past couple of weeks, I think a lot of times our doubts about our salvation, doubts about ourselves, oftentimes can be directly linked to our lack of love towards other people during that season as well, right? Because there's assurance that comes from loving others about our faith. We see this in 1 John. There's assurance that comes um, loving others assures us of our own salvation. In 1 John chapter 2, 
Verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there's no cause for stumbling, right? Like, I stop stumbling around as I'm faithfully loving others because I'm gaining assurance, not because of my good deeds, not because of my good works, but because of the inward assurance I think that comes from having the love of Jesus live out of me, right? Like, I'm seeing myself being aligned with Jesus's purposes. It gives me assurance that I'm part of the team. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. How do we know? How do we know that we've passed from death into life? Well, we show an evidence of loving the brothers, right? 1 John chapter 4, verse 12. Same author, remember, same author. He's showing the blessing that comes from loving others. Remember that blessing that we're promised by washing each other's feet? The blessing that comes is assurance of our salvation. 1 John 4, 12. Um, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Loving others is gospel driven towards others and really towards ourselves. It's, it's a way that we preach the gospel to ourselves by loving others the way that Jesus loved us. What does, what does this radical love look like, right? Because I, I think it's unique. I think it's different. I think it's distinguishable from a lost and dying world's attempt to love. Number one, it lays down one's own needs for the needs of others. It lays down one's own needs for the needs of others. First John chapter 3, verse 16, by this we know love that he laid down his life for us, talking about Jesus. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. What does it look like to lay down our lives for the brothers? Verse 17, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. One of us is in need. We have a response or a responsibility to respond to that need, to show love, not just verbally, but through our actions. We lay down our lives for the brothers. We, we take care of each other's needs when appropriate. Number two, it places value on people rather than stuff. Right? This is the opposite of Judas because Judas values stuff over people. We've seen that. That's his pattern. From the passage that we just recently studied in our D groups, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That's Judas, right? That's Judas. He wanders away from the faith. Why? Because he has a love for money. He loves stuff more than people. Radical love that the lost world looks at and says, those guys follow Jesus. It's a love that values people over stuff because we're typically giving our stuff away to people, right? Lays down one's own needs for the needs of others. Places value on people other than stuff. Number three, it forgives rather than hold grudges. It forgives rather than hold grudges, which is not typical of the human being typically, right? We, we, we typically are, are ones that would hold on to grudges, not one to continue to forgive. But Luke chapter 17, verse 3 Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must 
forgive him. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You see the pattern that typically what we're called to do is in response to what Jesus has already done to us, right? Jesus has already forgiven us so that we turn around and forgive. We're called to love others because Jesus has demonstrated love towards us. And then number four, it loves even when it doesn't feel or receive love back. It loves even when it doesn't feel or receive love back. And this, to me, might be one of the most important points for us to get when we're trying to process, well, what does it mean for me to love in such a way that, that I'm identified with a unique love that connects me with Jesus? It's that we're faithfully loving people even if we don't get it reciprocated back to us. Because we are typically the type of people that will love and then start to pull back or cut off some of that when we feel like it's not being received, when it's not being returned, right? And I've struggled with this in the past, and I've had to really fight and, and change my perspective, right? Because sometimes you can get caught up, and so just practically what does this look like? Well, Okay, I'm going to be intentional about reaching out to this individual, maybe having this individual over to my house. I want to be hospitable. But man, that person never has me back over to their house, right? Like, like when are they going to initiate? Why am I always the initiator? Why am I one of the, the few people that I see as an initiator in my church as being the one to show hospitality, right? And so we start to pull back and we're like, hey, if you guys aren't going to love me back, then, then I'm just going to stop showing love myself, Right? Whereas the pattern in Scripture would seem to be, now you keep being the one who shows the love. Right? You keep being the one who shows the example of love because the radical type love that separates us from the world is when we're loving and it doesn't make sense anymore while we're still loving. Right? When we love our enemies who certainly don't love us back. When we love each other within the church, even when we don't feel like we're receiving that love back ourselves that we keep loving because that's what we're called to do. We are commanded to do it, right? It's a command that we're being obedient to, and we're never told to stop being obedient to it. It's not love each other until you look around and realize, I don't feel like I'm being loved back, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move on and go find some other people to love and see if they'll love me back, right? It's why Christian marriages are different than a world marriage, right? Is that I'm called to love my spouse whether I'm feeling loved back or not, right? That's a different type of love that starts to connect us with Jesus because Jesus loved us when we were his enemies, right? He loved us when we were sinners. He's washing, he's washing the, the disciples' feet, including Judas, who's about to betray him. Certainly not gonna love him back. He's about to betray him, right? To me, one of the key differences in what this radical type of love looks like, it's because we love even when it doesn't, when we don't feel love or receive love back. All right. Number three, be grateful that failures aren't always betrayals. Be, be grateful that failures aren't always betrayals. For our kids, Jesus calls us to follow him and forgives us when we don't. It's crazy. You got two of the well-known disciples in this passage, right? We all know Peter. We all know Judas. You ask anybody on the street who, who's, who has any knowledge of Christianity, hey, name some of the disciples of Jesus. 
you probably get Peter's name, you probably get John's name, you probably get Judas's name. All right, so you got Peter and Judas here. Two guys who we think of drastically differently, right? Like Peter's like A plus number one disciple, even though he's kind of a screw up at times. He's he's like he's kind of the leader, right? And then you got Judas kind of bottom of the barrel guy. Right? I've told you that the disciples probably thought very highly of Judas. Right? But now that we kind of have all the cards, we see the, the outcomes, we think of these two guys as way different. But if you're John, if you're Thomas, and you're watching the next few hours play out, I don't know that you see them as that drastically different. Right? Because I'm sure Peter kind of comes back pretty dejected after he fulfills Jesus' prophecy here about denying him. You got one who betrays him, who goes and gets the authorities and says, he's right here, give me 30 pieces of silver and I'll turn him over to you. Then you got Peter right here who, who's kind of there hovering around. Maybe he even shouldn't have been because Jesus said, where I'm going, you can't go with me. Maybe he would have been better off just not being around, right? But you got uh, Peter kind of lurking around and everybody's like, hey, you buddies with Jesus? Hey, you follower Jesus? Nope, nope, nope. But there is a difference between these two people, Right? Because one's a devil. One, Jesus says, you're not clean. You haven't been bathed. Yes, I'm washing your feet, but you're dirty still. Whereas he tells Peter, all I need to do is wash your feet right now because there's some of this daily cleansing that still needs to happen, but you are clean, right? How, how, what's the difference between the two? Well, number one, true salvation will lead us to want new things. I think a clear distinction between Peter and Judas is that Peter demonstrates a clear desire to follow Jesus. Now, is he great about carrying out that desire every time? No. He's a work in progress. And he gets a, he gets a boost of, of, of spiritual energy after he sees the resurrected Christ. And he, he tables the denying peace. He tables the fear and becomes a bold proclaimer of Jesus. But before he sees the resurrected Christ, he's, he's not great at carrying out these, these new wants and desires of following Jesus, right? But what's present is this desire. Because he, he confesses, he says, where are you going, Lord? Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Remember, Peter's the one that Jesus said, uh, are you guys gonna walk away too? Remember when, those, when those, that group of people walked away after he talked about eating my, my, my flesh and drinking my blood? Everybody's like, that's weird. Like, we're going to leave. No more teaching from Jesus. Like, it's R-rated stuff now, right? Jesus says, you guys going to leave too? And Peter's like, where else would we go? Right? Like, I don't know what you're saying, but where else would we go? Right? Like, I don't know what you're talking about, but I'm willing to stick around and find out. Right? Peter's different than Judas because Judas, remember, is saying, and we could have used that money for the poor, what I mean by that is I could have taken that money and stuck it in my pocket and told you I spent it on the poor, right? Judas isn't sticking around to follow Jesus. He's sticking around because he thinks it's beneficial to his pocket, right? The difference between Peter and Judas is that Peter has real desires to follow Jesus that are there because the Holy Spirit indwells him. The Holy Spirit has placed those desires there, right? True salvation will lead us to want new things. Number two, true salvation will not exempt us from failing though. Man, find great hope this morning in the fact that Peter is forgiven for denying Jesus, right? Like we don't ever want to glory in somebody's failures, but maybe it's a little appropriate right here to say, man, Peter screwed up too, 
right? And, and he's still considered clean. He's still considered bathed, right? Jesus doesn't tell him he needs a new bath, that he needs to get resaved, right? Jesus kind of whispers in his ear and says, buddy, all I need to do is wash your feet because you are clean, my friend. And then he's like, but not everybody here is. Like, there's at least one person that's really dirty, right? He's not clean. And he's going to do something real similar that you're going to do. But the difference is, is I know, I know I've chosen you. And when you've been chosen, right, like you, you're guaranteed to have the desires that are going to sustain you, that are going to keep you holding fast. Because we've talked before, us making it to the end, our perseverance, man, it's not tied to, to our ability to overcome the world, right? It's tied to the fact that God makes promises over and over and over again. I'm going to keep you believing until Jesus comes back. True salvation will not exempt us from failing. Jesus reveals an immaturity, but not an inaccuracy about Peter's faith. Right? He's not a false believer. He's not a pretender like Judas was. He's immature. He's failing. He's not exempt from failing, and neither are we. But going back to our summary sentence, my identity is not wrapped up in the evil that's done to me or the failures or evil that I commit. Right? It's tied to the fact that Jesus loves me. He's chosen me. He loves me. He's given me new desires that involve loving other people. I don't have to be defined by my failures. I don't have to be defined by the things that have been done to me. I'm defined by the love that's been demonstrated towards me by the cross, Jesus on it, glorifying his Father. Application. Number one, what does it look like for you personally to love others outside our church intentionally like Jesus? And number two, what does it look like for you to personally, for you personally to love others inside our church intentionally like Jesus? And I think you need some real things here. Because what we're prone to do is say, good word, pastor. I'll keep doing what I'm doing. I'm trying to love people. But it's a command, which means we aren't inclined to do it, which means if we don't think about this, we'll build our schedules this week, we'll plan our events this week, and likely loving others will get left out. Man, I think one of the most loving things that you can do right now in our church is to be real intentional with uh, gathering with our believers when it comes to our D group settings and our C group settings. And this is how you demonstrate love in this church where you've chosen to be a member at, right? Like we want you to gather, we want you to gather with other believers. And you say, hey, my schedule doesn't work for those things. That's, that's fine. Then, then you've got a little bit more responsibility on you to figure out how do I gather with my church family outside of those times because my schedule doesn't fit. But the fact is, is that we have to find a way to love each other intentionally through his word, serving each other. And one of, the, one, of the, one of the ways that we've made it easy for you to do that is through that format of gathering monthly with men and women in our church separately and then all together, right? Where we can lean on each other, whether you feel like you need it or not, right? I can guarantee you people in your group need you, Right? needs you there to love, and needs you to keep loving even if you don't feel like you're getting loved back, right? Because that's, that's where the world starts to look at it and say, that church, that group of people, man, they are followers of Jesus because they love 
whether they get loved back or not, right? What does it look like for you to personally love others outside of our church? What does it look like for you to personally love people inside of our church? Now, what I just gave you are suggestions, right? You're not going to find anywhere in Scripture that commands you to do it the way that I just said. What you do find in Scripture is that you are commanded to do it. So you have to figure out, how does that look for me? How does it look for our family to do this intentionally, to carry out this command? All right? Family worship questions for this week. What are some ways God shows his love towards us? And what are some ways we can show love to each other as a family? So as you work through this passage as a family, what are some ways that God shows his love towards us? Because that's the foundation. That's what leads us to then love others, right? What are some ways God shows his love towards us? What are some ways we can show love to each other as a family? Let's pray together. God, we thank you so much for this passage. God, I pray that it would convict us and encourage us where we need it. God, convict us where we need to love others more deeply, where we need to love others more intentionally. God, help us to see that we are commanded to do so. Help us to see that we are commanded to do it because you're no longer physically present with your people. You're not here to love us on a daily basis in physical format. And so we need each other to do that towards each other. So God, help us to see that we play an important role, that we get to, we get to model the example that you've shown of what it looks like to love and to serve and to do that towards others in your absence. God, I pray that we would be intentional to love, not casually, not passively, but proactively, intentionally, so that others begin to define us or identify us with that love. God, I'm thankful that we can be reminded today that when evil comes our way, it doesn't surprise you, it doesn't function independently from you, and it has zero success in our life. God, we thank you that you know the evil before it happens, you command it when it comes on the scene, and you use it for exactly what you wanted to occur. And Father, we praise you and thank you that when we fail in all of this and we screw up and we don't love people like we should and we grow selfish and we do things the way that we want to do them and we close people out and we, we grow frustrated and maybe even bitter at times and, and we, we aren't demonstrating love towards each other, God, we're thankful that you forgive us for that. God, we're thankful that we're not automatically labeled as a betrayer, that maybe at times we're a denier, but God, we're thankful that your forgiveness abounds, that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. God, help us not to allow our own failures to cripple us into thinking that, that we're not loved by you anymore. Instead, Father, help us to get a, a refreshed and a renewed perspective about your love when we see our failures and see that you still love us. God, I pray that we'd be able to turn around and show that example that we would love others in the midst of their failures too. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org. Thank you.